0: Hey, and welcome back to the Word Weaver podcast. You are listening to Chapter 18. On today's chapter, I had the pleasure and the honor of chatting with Ray Del Bianco, who is the author of Rough Animals. Ray grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. She learned to raise livestock and even founded a beef cattle operation at the age of 14. Later, she attended Duke University on a Robertson scholarship and was later accepted to Curtis Brown's six-month novel writing course in London, England. It was the first chapter of Rough Animals that got her acceptance to Curtis Brown's prestigious program, and it was throughout those six months while she lived in London that Ray actually finished the full manuscript for Rough Animals. Afterwards, she moved to New Jersey to live with her 88-year-old grandmother for almost four years while she finessed and finished her first debut novel. Ray is an alumnus of Tin House's Summer Workshop and a wildly popular Bookstagrammer with almost 20,000 followers on Instagram. While the road to publication for her debut novel Rough Animals was a long one, taking nearly three years and over 50 rejections before she saw it on shelf, the launch was a smashing success. Ray has been compared to Cormac McCarthy, and Rough Animals has been called Breaking Bad meets No Country for Old Men. Publishers Weekly called it a furious and electric debut, while Vogue magazine called it existentially gripping, and the New York Post named it one of the top 25 thriller books of the summer. It was amazing to get the chance to speak with Ray as she's touring the world, promoting rough animals, while also just about to begin diving back into that writing process for her next novel. Speaking with Ray, I discovered that she is just as engaging, articulate, and poised as her prose. This is definitely a conversation I won't be forgetting anytime soon. Hi, Ray. Welcome to the Word Fever podcast. We got to chat a little bit before I pressed record. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today and get to pick your brain about everything.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Louise. I'm super excited to chat.
0: Me too. Okay, so let's just dive right in. Kind of what I mentioned to you is I like to start at the beginning, like any good story. And you have a really fascinating childhood. You grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which just that name alone sounds like a Western film location. And you learned to raise livestock. And I'm just curious to know more about your childhood and if this background is kind of what prompted you to want to be a writer someday, just stories and learning how to story tell on a farm
1: in Bucks County. Absolutely. And I, I think it was the most formative experience towards my becoming a writer. Um, my parents don't farm, but as a sort of weekend retreat from the office, they got a bit of land. And I, when I turned 14, decided I wanted to move up from goats, which I'd raised since I was eight, to cattle. And I didn't have any of that uh any of that knowledge that's often passed through generations to farming families of how to do things. And all I had was, you know, I went to the local feed mill and I got a VHS tape back then about how to string an electric fence. <laughs> you know, I, I had a, an old pamphlet on livestock judging and veterinary science. I had to learn everything from scratch and dealing with this, uh, 600-pound animal that had never been touched by humans before besides to get shots and be castrated. Oh, Um, wow. turning it into a 1,200-pound animal that uh, was able to be safely shown in an arena um, that I could handle. And that would be, you know, food to feed my family and my community. And it was such a massive and physical challenge. Um, Every day, you know, you're coming back after having gotten knocked down into the mud. Your hands are bleeding. And you've had to stand up and face this animal again so many times. Mm-hmm. And without it, you know, it never became your me. It was always your goal. And I think that motion and that appreciation of, of getting back up again, no matter how many times you've been knocked into the mud, was the most useful habit, trait, or aspiration that I could have taken with me into writing. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's essential to be able to look not only in, in the publishing process, having perseverance, but also in being relentless in pushing your art to the absolute limit it can be. And even when the art fights back in a way, being able to stand up again and keep chasing it.
0: Oh my God. I love that metaphor and that imagery. And it's so true. It takes so much grit to see this whole process through. And you can say that because you've gone through it all now. And looking back, it's really cool that that experience kind of in your childhood Help shaped it and also I, I know I've read before you said modeling in a, di- a completely different vein is similar I mean the rejection that you face that and to keep going back to castings and having to put yourself out there again and again it takes the same kind of grit and determination
1: I, I think it's really one of the things that makes writing tough is that when you close your computer at the end of the day you, you can't really see that something you've built whereas you know with a with the steer, you have a very, very you have physical evidence, especially over the course of the year of what you've created and what you've built. Um, but with rejections, sometimes it's important to take, take stock of your rejections as evidence of how far you've come and what you've accomplished that you've put yourself out there and you're, you're trying.
0: Absolutely. That's a really good way to look at it, actually. Later in life, you went to Duke University. What did you study while you were there?
1: I was pre-med and English and then decided sophomore year that uh, you could not be both a novelist and a surgeon <laughs> and um, made my choice to go exclusively English.
0: Amazing. So you graduated from there and then following that, you were accepted into the Curtis Brown Novel Writing Program in London, England, which is incredible. That's very hard to get into. What was that experience like being around other writers and finally having the freedom to dedicate your time to the craft of writing?
1: It's absolutely been one of the most rewarding and exciting experiences of my career so far, Uh, going to a completely different place where I didn't know anyone. And, you know, the Brits do have a different culture than us Americans and being entirely out of my comfort zone. (laughs) That class of there are 14 of us, and I trust every single one of them entirely with my writing. And it was so amazing to see what when you come to depend on a peer as a reader, Mm -hmm. That what they can accomplish in your work in order to help you become better at editing, better at writing. So many of my classmates, I still keep in touch with them and have them working on my drafts with me all the way up until when I'm about to submit the final draft for publication because they know my work and they know me so well that they know what I'm striving for. And I really think there's nothing more valuable than being able to get criticism from a reader you trust.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Well, And just being around... I mean, your professors who taught the courses, that in itself is such a gift.
1: Oh, absolutely. And hearing from... They also had a seminar series where they brought in authors and agents and publishers um, of like all levels. Jeffrey Archer came in to speak, Kate Hamer, some smaller local authors. And you heard such a breadth of experience and everybody's uh, work habits, everybody's experiences with rejection, with relying on their peers. And it, it put the industry into perspective for me in a way that I hadn't understood it yet.
0: And before you went there, did you have kind of the seed of the idea for Rough Animals, or did you think of that while you were in the program?
1: I actually had only the uh, the first chapter. I, I wrote pretty much all of it in London. I had been working on a novel that I wrote during college um, and just reworking it, reworking it, and it was, it was about college because I'd felt so culture-shocked of uh, going to Duke after growing up in such a isolated conservative place and I felt throughout those years that the farming life and my own experiences with survival, isolation, living off the land were too close to home for me to fully you know see them in a light in which you can write about them. and mm-hmm. a year after college I had made no progress in being able to get an agent with this college novel. Um, nothing had turned up and I decided to turn back and look at all the novels that I love. I love William Faulkner Cormac McCarthy, that really earthy grit of a story, and I finally realized, why, why am I not writing something like that? And I wrote the first chapter to Rough Animals, and that was what was accepted into Curtis Brown, and that was the first positive response I'd gotten from the industry, and um, that just it took off.
0: Oh, that's incredible. I think I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true, you can tell me if it is or not, that you wrote the first draft, or at least part of it, while you're in London, eating British bacon, chain smoking, and holding up in your little flat for 14 hours a day. Can you tell us about your writing routine then compared to now? And is that how Rough Animals came
1: to be? We, uh, we met with agents at the end of the Curtis Brown course, which I think is an absolute gift and you can get feedback and introduce yourself. So I determined to finish the draft from start to finish within those six months. Um, and it, it did take 14 hours a day. And I think I took what, one day off a month in order to make that happen. And now that I do have a bit more time um, for my writing routine, I'm, I'm reassessing whether or not that was a helpful method. I think it's great to be able to get work on the pages. I was at a seminar last year, and it was Chris Beatty speaking, who founded NaNoWriMo. And he he said two things that really stuck to me about why I figured out that my own process had seemed to work for me at that point in my life. And the, the first was that it's often easier to do an impossible thing than a merely difficult one.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: He said that in response to people suggesting that they limit the, the NaNoWriMo requirement. It's, it's about 1,600 words a day, and people had asked him to uh, reduce it to 1,000, you know, so more people could participate to make it easier. And he was saying that 1,600 words, really large chunk of writing you're forced to shape your life around it and prioritize that thing. If you go smaller than that and you make it a merely difficult thing, you're more apt to put other priorities ahead of it. And then it turns out that you don't get around to the writing. And the other thing he said was that you can edit a bad draft into a good one, but you can't edit a blank page. Yes. There is something to be said for whether it's a self-imposed deadline as it was in my case or anything else, that you can impose onto your writing schedule to just make yourself get something onto the page. And a lot of, I think a lot of writer's block can, is simply a synonym of fear. Absolutely. There's ways that you can force yourself to be courageous and get past that and get onto editing and being more productive.
0: Mm -hmm. Did you enjoy the process of writing a manuscript? You are in isolation. You have to give up your social life. I'm curious if that was easy for you. Are you an introvert? or was it hard to push against your natural tendencies if you are more of an extrovert?
1: I would definitely call myself extroverted introvert. That I can definitely handle isolation for long amounts of time. I actually never really felt that because I had you know, I had that class in London once a week and you know we'd we'd go out afterwards and my hours with them were always so fruitful and full of Passionate discussion from people that I really understood me at my core. There was no, I, there was no small talk, and I didn't miss small talk during that time. Mm-hmm. I also felt so completely engaged with my characters and with what I was writing that I, I seemed to thrive in a way for that time. Because for me, when I sit down at the computer to write, I'm absolutely enthralled and I absolutely love it. And I think some people you know, don't necessarily feel that, and it makes it really hard to be a writer if you don't enjoy the actual. Doing the work, <laughs> yeah. So that was that was one of the happiest times of my life. Was getting to do nothing but write. It was wonderful.
0: Oh, that's so amazing. You kind of touched on it a little bit, but what is your writing routine like now?
1: So right now, I'm at the very start of a new novel. I'm experimenting with writing in the morning instead of the nighttime and becoming a little bit less nocturnal. And trying to balance more of my reading into my writing. Instead of having that time push, you, I I wasn't able to do much reading during those six months, which I think can be great to refresh and rehabilitate your mind after you've spent a lot of it writing. Mm -hmm. I'm sorting that out as well and just trying to take the time to get back into the zone and figure out what works for me. And I'm sure that will continue to change as my career progresses.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the fun part is, getting into a new groove each each day. You get to set your own writing time. Exactly. And you kind of have to just like go with what your mind is telling you to do. Rejection is something I want to talk to you about because I think a lot of writers skip over it once they are a little bit more successful and I think it's because nobody wants to dwell on the negative. Nobody wants to talk about the painful part of the publishing process, which is rejection, but it really is important to be honest and transparent just about how hard it truly is to get a book published. And I will say for me I was a little naive before I entered this process of I thought it would be easier. I thought I have a great idea, I know what you're supposed to do and everything will line up, but it is beyond difficult to even carve a little niche in the publishing sphere these days whether you're self-publishing or trying to get traditionally published, and I'd love to ask you, what was the publishing journey like for you? Was it difficult? Did you face rejection? Tell us everything. <laughs>
1: so I had the same misunderstanding as you, did. and I think coming from you know someone who you know applied to a tough school and knew that all you have to do is you you know you work hard, you get good grades, you fill out the application, you write well, and good things happen. Right. And that was my understanding of the world up to that point. And I did not understand that there were some things that it took so much more than that. So I was, I was really had a hard time realizing just how difficult this was going to be. And I think I'm, I'm quite thankful for the fact that I didn't realize when entering this career how difficult it was going to be because um, you can only take so much of that at a time. Mm-hmm. Ignorance is bliss. Exactly, exactly. And it was, it was almost like self-preservation. I think we hear so many stories about, oh, J.K. Rowling was rejected this many times, this person was rejected that many times. And, but you, most of us you know, don't go into that believing that these one in a million stories apply to us. But at the same time, one of the most wonderful realizations I've had since getting published and having the opportunity to talk to some more experienced writers was that my rejection experience, which was me taking three years to get a publishing deal and getting rejected by over 50 publishers, was completely normal. Mm-hmm. And that almost every established writer has a story exactly like that. And it's interesting to me that that's not more commonplace knowledge. I think, I wonder if maybe it is, and we block ourselves out when we're beginning because we don't want that to be our case. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to expect rejection. You, you can't be productive and ambitious and hopeful and expect to be rejected, even though in the publishing world, a large degree of rejection is not necessarily an assessment of your worth.
0: Right. Especially in something that's so subjective. Exactly. And it, it took me a, hard, a long time to develop kind of that thick skin. But then I saw rejection as, wow, this person took the time even to read it and write such a
1: thoughtful rejection letter that means something to me. Exactly. You know, we've all gotten those. You know, I had a friend who uh, rejection from an agent bounced back in ninety seconds. <laughs> wow,
0: record time!
1: <laughs> right, really fast reader. Um, and there's something to be said for you know you can read a rejection and sometimes they clearly didn't understand your work or you just weren't for them, and then sometimes they did understand your work. And it's something that's really thoughtful and helpful to read. I, I think a good rejection or a good criticism is an amazing tool.
0: Absolutely. It just takes one person to believe in you. Yep. And for you, that was your literary agent and your publisher. You're with Skyhorse. Yes. Have you enjoyed working with a team of people, putting together rough animals, picking the cover design? What was that like?
1: It's been great. I'm super fortunate to have two agents, one in the UK and one in the US, and the different perspectives that they're both able to add to my work is really a priceless experience. I love both of their views and to be able to work in conjunction with that as a as a team. They both fully understand who I want to be creatively and my path as an artist and I think that's the most wonderful thing you could hope for, for someone on your team. Uh, as far as the cover goes, I actually, uh, I did that myself. No. Yeah. I, uh, wow. <laughs> it was, it was a lot of fun. So Box wood is one of the central motifs of the book. Um, the book starts out in Box Elder County, Utah, and it's named for this, this type of uh, maple that when you cut it open, if it's been damaged or been exposed to a fungus or disease, it will come out like blood red on the inside. And I spoke to my publisher and really wanted to use that imagery for the cover. We couldn't find any stock images or anything available that was of good enough quality. So I uh, went searching online, found a stockyard out in Wyoming, I believe, and uh, our lumber yard, excuse me, um, and bought a turning block of wood and then um, went and to visit my dad's friend from church who a uh, recently immigrated from China and does not speak English. And we somehow like got together this idea of the cover together that we started setting up this wood on his table saw and designing the cover right there. And I photographed it and uh, that was that. I still have the wood blocks.
0: That is so cool. You don't hear that very often. That you get to dis- the author gets to design or even have really a say in the cover.
1: Yeah, I so appreciated them being willing to work with me on that, and I'm, I'm sure it sounded absolutely crazy. The writer asking, you know, can I can I take a shot at this? <laughs> um, and I, I love that they were able to be so collaborative.
0: And I I really love the cover. I mean, I know it's silly. It shouldn't be about the aesthetic, but it's a nice book to have on your bedside table. To be honest,
1: yeah, I, that was all I could hope for super successful,
0: super impressive launch for your debut novel. Your writing is beautiful. It's descriptive. I love the book. And I am so curious to ask you, what was it like after all of these years, three years of seeing your book on shelf for the first time?
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for all of that. Um, I mean, it's, it's such, it's such a dream. Seeing it on the shelf for the first time, i'm I'm a bit of a crier when it comes to these things. <laughs> and I've had so many of those moments lately. and uh, after you've worked so hard and seen, you know so many people have supported you through this and it's been such a long journey, having it work out is the greatest dream that anyone could ever imagine. And seeing it on shelves, you just get this absolute moment of, of it's pure shock and the idea of anybody else reading it. Um, it, it really is incredible to realize that the story is not just your own anymore and that it exists in other people's heads. They've interpreted it, you know, belongs to the readers now. Right. And it's just been, you know, I almost have these like spasms of being so, so, so happy that I, I can't believe that all this has led to this and that I actually get to do this for a job. It's really unbelievable. I'm so grateful.
0: It's seeing that grit and determination, like you said, from raising livestock and All the way until here. Since the launch, you've been featured all over. You were in Vogue, which is amazing. (laughs) Refinery29, New York Magazine, New York Post, the Chicago Review of Books. What has the acclaim and public recognition felt like for something, like you said, that was very private at one point, and now it's up for public consumption and interpretation?
1: I think that's been the most surreal thing of all that uh, I can only, I just keep thinking back to what 14 year old me would have thought if I'd told her she would get to talk to Vogue about her cows. (laughs) Um, I think above anything, it just sort of surpasses belief. And it's really amazing to, and I, you know, I grew up in such isolation with people. I, I believe that rednecks, which I call who I grew up with and myself fondly, and I know it's sometimes a derogatory term. I think, a lot of times they are treated derogatorily and they're viewed as a segment of America that can still be made fun of, but is not respected. And despite the fact that they have so many struggles in that community and to be able to talk to all these media outlets about my life as a redneck, as a rural kid trying to survive off the land in my own small, tiny way and having people care about that, especially in New York, was a really, really incredible experience and in my realizing how much empathy we really can have and when we take the time to focus on literature, art, things that build connections between people of entirely different experiences, we really can change our take on things and I, I thought that was so valuable to be able to have the opportunity uh, to share my own story with people who were of completely different backgrounds and for also for me to be able to feel understood that hadn't happened to me yet. I'd always felt like an outsider going into this very academic literary world. Um, And it was such a gift to be able to have that.
0: Oh, that's amazing. And I really love how you've reclaimed the word redneck. Even in your Instagram bio, you're that redneck kid author. That's really cool. While I'm speaking about Instagram, this whole bookstagram community, which I'm embarrassed to say I found out about a lot later than I would care to admit, (laughs) but you have almost 20,000 followers on Instagram. I know that's just pixels on a screen, but that's very impressive. And it's a niche community of people, part of this Bookstagram community. How did you first get started with Bookstagram? And what are your thoughts on writers and social media? For me, just to give you my take on it, I find it a hard balance because writing is such a private practice while it's happening and then to put it out there and promote yourself on social media, it's a hard give and take to figure out how to do that appropriately, which I think you've done a very good job at. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on Bookstagram, how
1: you started and social media for writers. Sure. So uh, my Bookstagram life actually began because of William Faulkner I studied him heavily during college and then going to London. I was part of a Faulkner salon. We read a different book every six or eight weeks and had a weekly discussion. And when I came home and moved back in with my grandmother to be writing full time again back in the U.S., I immediately found myself without this literary community that I'd come to really depend upon and love discussing with. And I realized on Instagram that you can find people by hashtag. Um, by what they've posted and by hashtag William Faulkner, you can instantly at any hour of the day connect with people who had read and loved those books. And it is a niche part of literature and to be able to find people like that and instantly engage with them. And I found myself having these amazing conversations with complete strangers. And I, I think people connect over great books the way you would over a shared life experience or anything that would create this, this instant bond between people that you've never spoken to. And I found that discussions about books are able to get very serious and very real very quickly in a very valuable and productive way. So I started having these conversations and realizing that, you know, if I if I posted about a certain book I was reading, I started generating those conversations myself. And Bookstagram to me became this sort of mobile 24-hour book club. And I was able to meet people from, I mean, I'm I'm speaking to you from, you know, a different country right now. And I was able to meet, it's amazing that you're able to make these connections all over the world with people who share a love of these stories together. And I've also discovered so many great books from people who understand my reading taste and are able to recommend me more. So I guess going full circle to your question about how writers can get involved I don't share my writing on social media. I don't believe that art can be done, you know, collectively or publicly in this way. Mm -hmm. So for me, Bookstagram is about my reading life and about sharing what I love about that with a community. My my writing has not ever been a community activity. You know, you have a few trusted readers, um, but my reading is. And I I think having a large reading community is something that's enormously productive. I was also... um, With Rough Animals, it was wonderful to be able to share it with people who liked the same books that I'd like, and we'd already connected over elements of different books, and I was excited to be able to bring the book out to them. I think as a writer, you do need to decide for yourself. What do you feel comfortable sharing? Like you said, it's it's tough to share work and pro, process, progress, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And you know, some people, I don't like to share my daily life on Instagram. Some people are much more comfortable sharing that or talking more candidly about their project. Some Instagram writers who I absolutely love, Una Moon shares snippets of her writing and her poetry on her Instagram. And I absolutely love her work. She writes with a very... Uh, very heavy language style. And it's so tactile. It's so full of the woodlands and the wild and the weather. And I really love that. So that's another example of someone who's taking the opposite approach and fully making it about their writing and sharing openly what they're doing in progress. Um, And it's worked out beautifully for her.
0: No, I love that. It's kind of however you want to shape it, whatever your boundaries are as a creative person. I like that you just share your reading and you keep your writing private. That's a good way that's a very smart way to balance it.
1: I think it's it really has to be about when it's depending on your creativity, which it, it really is. You know, you're kind of telling a story through a photo when you're conveying a book that you stick to whatever you're comfortable with and whatever area you think you would really enjoy posting about. And I, I think the... Social media is only useful so long as you are strongly engaged. Yes. And if you choose the things that you genuinely want to be engaged with other people on, then you'll be successful.
0: Yeah. And it comes across as authentic. I know that word is
1: overused, but... But in this case, absolutely, I agree.
0: Yeah. So I would love to go talk about your next project. I mean, we've we've talked about rough animals, but you're still kind of in the throes of promoting that. How do you balance writing your next book? And can you tell us about that project while also promoting your last project?
1: Absolutely. I've, um, yeah, I, I've heard from other writers as well how important it is to take a step back and make sure that you're, you're not using the existing novels publication as a distraction from writing. Mm-hmm. It's been such a gift going through this process, but I am excited to turn around and, and get to writing again um, and making that my full-time effort. I um, So the novel coming up this time around, I'm more interested in delving even further into this, this redneck life and the role of that margin of society in today. Um, as I said before, it's a group that's been enormously isolated. And I think as a food former food producer, an enormous amount of this has to do with the fact that we as Americans are very reluctant to look directly at where our food comes from. Mm-hmm. We are so isolated with this idea of the boneless, skinless chicken breast that it's so easy to forget it was ever an animal. Same thing with hamburgers. And in our refusal to look at the everyday violence that generates our food, we've isolated these rural communities geographically, but also um, ideologically, and they and societally, they've become no longer a part of our national empathy or our national concern. These farming communities where bull riding, where for very little more than minimum wage, you can get multiple concussions and life-threatening injuries. And that's determined um, to be a good career prospect by young men. Wow. And how, how did we get into these economic and educational and job deserts where the opioid crisis has completely blown through? And I'm just really interested in how do we looking at those characters and also bridging a gap between our empathy for those who are more similar to us and those we see in our everyday. And then also those who, you know, our own decisions as Americans uh, wanting to avoid the hard decisions of confronting where our meat comes from and taking an honest look at that and holding that emotional weight of respect um, and how that plays into how we treat each other. So the next novel is about a bull rider who, following a uh, career-ending injury, gets involved with opioids, um, and then also eventually goes into this world of livestock doping. That was uh, something that fascinated me on the larger scales through... I I showed livestock only on a county and regional level, but heard all sorts of stories about um, the food crises that were resulting of jackpot showmen up at these high-stakes state-level shows where people were drugging these livestock food animals in order to to win using steroids or whatnot that happened to be toxic to humans Wow, and these animals are, are lost in the food supply, so it's impossible to turn around and pinpoint um, what the cause was and I, I'm really fascinated as again as a former food producer who was really focused on humane treatment of animals and sustainability environmentally as well as for the animal. what are economic situations and what culture is doing um to make this a routine thing, that, that food safety is a real, real issue, um, and why this healthy, humane, clean, sustainable local farming has not been able to take root.
0: Yeah. Oh my God, I'm really excited to read this, because nobody's touched on these topics and linked them together in such a big way,
1: as it sounds like you're doing. Thanks. Like, yeah, I'm excited to get writing it. <laughs> have you started it all? Yeah, no, I, I have started. I'm about 30,000 words in. Oh, Wow. That's
0: huge. Kind of my last question. This went by way too fast, but you've published one book. We just talked about your next book. I'm really excited. The Opioid Crisis too, is fascinates me. You recently modeled for Ralph Lauren or Ralph Lauren. I never say that, right? Ralph Lauren. Ralph Lauren. Thank you. <laughs> Which is so cool because it brings in your former modeling life, but also your love of words. It seems like you've done so much in your young life. Do you have any other big goals that you want to achieve? what does your ideal future look like? I know that's a lofty question.
1: <laughs> well, thank, thank you so much for all that. I mean, Ralph Lauren was a real dream because uh, they approached me ab- about writing. And the decision to come down to the farm—literally,
0: the best of both worlds.
1: That's what I was so happy about. That and you know, the the failed modeling career—it felt like the ultimate. Okay, I, I can close that book <laughs> um, with with no regrets. Getting to take pictures on them af- after I would written the essay. Yeah, that that was incredibly surreal and, and amazing to be able to be in a position where I'm reflecting on my writing process. I, you know, I was writing about. The effect that having that daily uniform, it was always an an XXL sweater, leggings and boots that I wore every day in in cold, constantly rainy London. And to work with them, I absolutely love that brand. Mm -hmm. For goals going forward, I I think having connections like that were were just incredible. And any other opportunities like that that come along, I would be ecstatic about. I'm also looking forward to working with with other artists. I think Ralph Lauren was a take of that. Um, And Bookstagram has always been, in a way. That is connecting with other people through their art, even if it's in a different medium than your own. I'm really fascinated by that and how the idea of fashion can play into writing and, you know, potentially film in the future. Um, any other collaborations like that? I really cherish and I'm looking forward to, you know, building up another writing community and wherever I end up in the coming years. I think just in general, continuing to expand that amazing privilege of being able to interact with other artists that I admire on my on my daily life
0: you're well on your way you have everything laid out for the best future ahead I'm so so honored to have talked to you and I'm excited to see what you do in the future as well thank you so much it was an honor to be on the podcast I
1: absolutely love this discussion
0: that's it for today's chapter of the Word Weaver Podcast. Make sure to follow along on Instagram at Wordweaver Podcast. If you like what you heard today, make sure to leave a review in iTunes as it helps more people find out about the Word Weaver Podcast. Until next time.
1: I